0: Hi everyone, welcome to Sandy K Nutrition, Health and Lifestyle Queen. Today with me, I have guests Ta and Cole Witte. They are retreat facilitators and psychedelic educators. And we get into all the things, including psychedelics, or if you want to call them power plants, which is something that they love to use as a term. We talk all about it. You know, why you would want to do that? Why would you want to even consider plant medicines, psychedelics, power plants? And how important is it to really be prepared if you do decide that this is something that you want to explore? And it was an incredible conversation. I'm not going to say too much more, but I do want to say I did do a couple of polls on my Instagram and it was interesting because one of the questions I put out there was, do you think we just have to live with past trauma? And a resounding no was the answer. Uh, I believe it was 83% of the people who answered my poll said no, but then I said, do you believe we should just not go there? And interestingly enough, that was almost a 50-50 split. So to me, that's a little bit of an oxymoron, don't you think? Because on the one hand, people are saying, the majority of people are saying, we don't have to live with past trauma. But then... It was a 50-50 split on people who answered and said, yeah, some people said we should just not go there. Interesting, isn't it? I thought it was really, really interesting. And I'm going to give you my own personal point of view. I believe that if you have mysterious illnesses and they are not resolved by diet lifestyle so you know you eat healthy you live healthy you exercise you're at a good weight you keep inflammation down you do all of the mindfulness stuff and yet you still have some pretty crippling issues diseases whatever they may be maybe that's a reason why you'd want to investigate this further or let's say you have crippling anxiety or crippling depression And you know that you've got some pretty serious trauma in your history, whatever that might be, whether it's, um, I don't even know, rape, sexual assault, whatever it might be, some pretty major stuff. Maybe that's an option. I just love my conversation with them. They're just so educated in this area and they have a lot of experience in guiding groups. And I am going to preface this by saying we do not condone any illegal activities here. We do not condone any of this. And if you think this is right for you, speak with your own health practitioner. We are also not giving any medical advice whatsoever here on this podcast. This is merely just a discussion and it is for educational purposes. Now, one other thing I do want to mention is that I have just hit 20,000 downloads of my podcast in 21 months. It's really, really humbling, actually, that people love the topics that I bring each week, and I love to bring them. I love to talk about them. I'm going to be bringing some great new topics coming up in the new year. If you are a business and you align with my message, then please do get in touch with me. Send me an email, sandy at sandyknutrition.ca, and I can send you my media kit and all of my stats, and we can see if we can come up with something together. Make sure you follow me on Instagram at sandyknutrition. I am there on Facebook too, sandyknutrition, Twitter. Um, where else am I? Pinterest. I'm on Oh, TikTok. How could I forget TikTok? Gosh, I had that dog cat viral video on TikTok. <laughs> anyway, I am pretty much anywhere and everywhere. So make sure you go and follow me. And also, I do take clients. I typically work with women over 40 for a three-month period. If you want to know if we're a good fit, what do I do exactly? I help to realign the body systems so that you can feel good again and you're not suffering with symptoms. So if you want to know if we are a good fit, send me a message. Again, sandy at sandyknutrition.ca and we could see if we are a fit to work together. I am going to see if I can put as much of this video or podcast recording on video on YouTube as well. So definitely check out my YouTube channel. And we will try and edit it enough because this is a little bit longer. I think it was about an hour and 20 minutes. I'm going to try and see if we can get it edited so that it'll be a little bit of a shortened version, but then you can go and watch it on YouTube. And it's, of course, Sandy K Nutrition. So check it out there as well and share, 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 share. I always say this. If you know somebody who might benefit from this, then please do share this podcast rate, review, and subscribe. I say that all the time. I sound like a broken record, but it's so important to us just to be able to be found. And now with that, I am going to cut on through to my interview with Ta and Cole Witty, retreat facilitators and psychedelic educators. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Sandy K. Nutrition Health and Lifestyle Queen. Today with me, I have Ta and Cole witty they are psychedelic educators and today we're going to talk about all things plant medicines and I am very excited to have them here because these two I've been following for a while and I really feel like they can teach us so much so I'm going to without further ado welcome Ta and Cole witty welcome both of you
2: Thank hey, you, yeah, happy to be here. So
0: honored. Yeah, I'm very happy to have you both here because I feel this is an area that has a lot of preconceived notions and I, I really love that you guys are just so wise and can really educate in this area that's actually a growing area. So of course, I'm always going to start off by asking what's your story? How did you get here? How did this begin?
2: I guess I will kick it off for today. Sure. So my name is Cole Witte, uh, co-founder of the Psychedelic Space Program, which is also the Psychedelic Space Podcast, and The Condor Approach, which is a facilitator training for integration coaches, which can be therapists, which can be life coaches, physicians, ketamine clinicians, and it. to get into the whole story would be an episode in itself. So I'm going to summarize it in about two and a half minutes, (laughs) one Mm -hmm. that's about, you know, almost 40 years to get to this point. And it's not a linear process, right? So the short version is by the time I hit my teens, I was an at-risk youth, uh, ended up in a coma from a drug overdose at 17, knew I had to get my life together of sorts. And so I flipped the pendulum the other way. Uh, became Miss Utah Teen, competed at Miss Teen USA. I was looking for a platform uh, to find purpose and meaning and something to bridge the gap so that I could stay out of the world I had found myself in by 17. And so that swung the pendulum into... Not just the pageant space, but working for a partnership for a drug-free America, doing things with the D.A.R.E. program and the U.N. and working with the U.N. overseas and speaking on national stages and national talk shows, universities, to share my story. So I was committed to substance abuse education. I was never anti-drug, per se, but I was into substance abuse education. It was a big problem in Utah in the 90s. We're talking rave scenes, that kind of thing. And so... In getting into that world, I was so entrenched in the once an addict, always an addict paradigm or belief system. I started to see that though it brought a lot of really beautiful gifts in the wake of community and the problem I found with it, we'll just go to that. The limitation that I found was that we were disempowering individuals. We were saying, once you're this, you will never be any different. And I really saw that in my 200 plus emails I was getting every single day, it felt hopeless. And the once an addict, always an addict thing just wasn't resonating anymore. Not because I didn't believe there were addicts, but this idea that someone could never change. I saw myself grow and evolve and change. And so I stepped out of that world, got tired of my story being manipulated Um, it was always being changed in some way to fulfill some narrative. And so I recognized that by my early 20s, left out as a profession, got into the rest of life, and then at 26 had a health crash. That's what kind of brought me back into the psychedelic space when I couldn't figure out um, what was going on. I had endometriosis, I'd had an ovarian torsion, scoliosis, fibromyalgia all over my entire body, I wasn't well. And so I hit a wall where I was desperate. I changed my diet and lifestyle, which was like 60% of my symptoms. But the other 40%, give or take, was self-hate and childhood mm-hmm. experiences and trauma. And so it, it took just that moment of desperation that I was willing to do anything. So I got reintroduced to psychedelics. And you know, fast forward almost 14 years, it's been life-changing for me uh, to... Be able to not only look at diet, nutrition, biohacking, what that has to offer, but how those inner dialogues were contributing to my health. And so after six years on my own path, I started to help other people. And that is the last eight years or whatever it's been now getting me to where I am now. So that's like the shortest version. And you can imagine how much I'd have to shift mentally to go from one world and back flip flopping into another yeah. Uh, but it's been a massive gift to reemerge here and to do this beautiful work with my amazing partner and friend Tawidi. Oh, so,
0: so sweet. So, <laughs> so sweet.
2: sweet. What so about sweet.
0: now? That's, that's pretty amazing. And I love what you say that not everything can be fixed by nutrition. And, you know, so it's, uh, you, you're definitely speaking a language I get some of it comes from inside, but how do you fix that? Right. How do you get mm-hmm. there? So what about you, Ta?
1: So <clears throat> it's interesting that you speak the word fix because I come from a background where everything was looking to be fixed mm. and I no longer see things as needing to be fixed, but shifted. And so, uh, I come from a, a very interesting life. Uh, I had a lot of childhood traumatic situations happened with me, a lot of self-loathing, self-hate, didn't know where I wanted to be, wanted a lot of attention, had what people would consider middle child syndrome. Um, My parents both worked and worked and worked and weren't around the house very much. So there was a lot of drama between my siblings and I. And so I grew up with a lot of self-loathing, self-hate, and. I experimented with a lot of really interesting situations with my body and sexuality, never substances though. Substances I stayed away from. I grew up in New York <clears throat> in the eighties with uh, with crack ravaging New York. So I stayed away from substances. I didn't have my first alcoholic beverage until I was 25. Wow. So, yeah, wow. I graduated from nursing school at age 20 with, a, with my registered nursing license. And so I started to work at age 20. I wasn't even drinking age when I graduated. And so I saw what alcohol and substances substances were doing to people, and so I stayed away from them. And the stigma that the healthcare industry had put on substances was really, really, really heavy. And so I stayed away from any kind of substance. I was told that psychedelics and uh, any substance that alters you is the devil. And stay away from it. It's going to put you in a bad place. And look at all of these people. And it just so happened that most of the people with chronic illnesses were people who were leaning on substances, right? Cigarettes, alcohol. So I stayed away from substances of any sort, and I and I leaned into other things uh, that that were addictive that kept me busy and kept me in a space of what I perceived was connection. And so uh, I graduated from nursing school at the age of twenty. I have been a, I have been a nurse for twenty nine years now. I spent twenty 25- five those years working in emergency rooms all over New York City so I learned the in and outs of drama and trauma and uh, so I'm pretty battle-tested when you talk about people who are trauma-informed that's where I got my, tra- my trauma information from was emergency rooms all over New York City and I worked at a lot of different hospitals because I wanted to see what it was like for people in different socioeconomic backgrounds different racial and ethnic spaces different religious backgrounds and see how disease processes affected all of these different people And I found that the undercurrent of all of these things was loneliness and shame. And this was the undercurrent of most dis-ease. And so, you know, in in the midst of all of this, uh, since I was working as a nurse, I had a very, very flexible way of working. And so I would tour with my music. So I did hip hop music for a long time on the underground. And I toured around Europe, I toured around the United States. And in my touring, I got to know a lot of different people from a lot of different places. And I still saw that the trends in everything was loneliness the trends were shame the trends were people hating themselves kind of like me, mm. and so this is this is um, a big part of how I got the information I got around all of this stuff. And so in tw- in 2010, I met Cole, mm. and at at Caesar's Palace, we were both doing a music show at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, and that's how we met. And and so I first got introduced to the idea of psychedelics from a person from from a, the guy who actually introduced me. Well, actually, brought Cole around uh, to that to that show in Vegas, and I didn't explore psychedelics with him. She told me about psychedelics. I was like, I'm not doing that. That's for hippie white people. I'm not doing that. <laughs> and so, and so, I leaned <laughs> away from it. And I kept saying, I got to get out of the healthcare industry. And I saw I saw a lot of calamity coming because I saw the corporatization of what was going on over those twenty over those twenty years that I was in the twenty three years that I was in the, in the clinical setting. And I kept telling Cole, I gotta get out of here. I gotta get out of here. Something's gonna happen in New York. I can feel it. And this healthcare system is gonna get hit hard if it's a bad flu season or whatever. And I kept saying this stuff. And I ended up breaking my back, you know, fracturing a, a spine in my vertebra, herniating a disc, and I couldn't walk for three months. Mm-hmm. So I was also doing personal training, right? So this is another thing that I was doing in the background, because I was looking to move away from nursing. So, I couldn't do personal training anymore. I couldn't work as a nurse anymore. I couldn't teach your fitness classes anymore. Mm -hmm. I couldn't tour with music anymore. I was completely boom. And so, the relationship that I was in for eight years dissolved around the same time. So, I was like at rock bottom again. Like, this was like the third or fourth time in my life I was at rock bottom. And so, Cole was like, you know, I still think that, you know, I I see where you are and I see the amount of knowledge that you have. And I think there's something that would tie all this together for you. And I was like, what? She's like, well, go to this ceremony and do these psychedelics with these. I was like, Oh, you want me to do drugs with hippie white people? And I was like, all right, I'll do it for you. And that's, that's, that's the way I got into exploring psychedelics is I told her I would do it for her and she held space for me. And, and I went and I did the most, the the lightest exploration of, of SAS, which is a MDA. And it, opened me up in a way it it first frightened me okay mda
0: mda can you explain mda what is that
1: yeah uh so mda is you know you know what mdma is
0: yes i've heard of it but i just for people who are listening Mm -hmm.
1: okay so so there's there so uh methylene dioxy amphetamine is MDA. And MDA is what we would call a heart opener. It's an empathogen okay. uh, or an intactogen. And it is, it is a, a synthetic form of uh, sassafras root. And it, it helps to put serotonin. It affects the serotonin, serotogenic system in the body in a way that makes a person feel very empathetic. It ve- feels very loving inwardly. Okay. And so it, 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 it break, it, it deactivates the the systems in the brain that would have you synchronized into, into spaces of habit and thought. And it allows you to dismantle that so that you can see things in a different way. So it's a, it's a really beautiful experience. And I did not accept that beautiful experience. (laughs) I was afraid of control. And that was the night that I found out that I was a control freak that I was trying to control everything in my life. And I controlled everything in my life through lies um, as a child, I, had, I was born 23 months after my brother. So I had approximated that I was a mistake because my mother told me that she didn't plan for me. And so I I've, i spent my whole life working to please my mother and making sure that no lies or and no truths around me ever got back to my mother. So I lied to everyone to make sure that that orchestration was there. And so the amount of, of, of control I had to have over my environment was tremendous. And in that one ceremony it opened me up over the next two weeks, not just in the ceremony, but in the next two weeks, the next actually two to four weeks, it opened me up into a space to see that I was trying to control everything and my body started to become more easy. And so I, I didn't know that I was trying to control things. I didn't know that I was trying to manipulate everything. And and it disabled my, my, my habit of control pattern to, to where I could actually see from outside of it. And so I started to let go of all of that control. I started to let go of all these things. And my body started to change. My body started to shift. And how I started to see things started to shift. And so all of the things, all of the studying, all of the things that I learned through the self-help books and all of the, 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 um, the new agey stuff that I was reading started to synchronize and come together and make all this sense. Because I, I, I was trying to control the way things were making sense in one way. It was very myopic. And so my, my, my eyesight, my, my vision started to open up inside my mind. And so I started to see things differently. I was also told that I'd be blind by the time I was age 40. I was diagnosed with something called retinitis pigmentosa in my early 20s. And I was told my my periphery was closing in. And I was told that I'd be blind by the time I was 40. And in, in my psychedelic experiences, I got my eyesight to start opening back up. I got oh. my central eyesight to, to, to align itself. Yeah, I've had some really amazing things happen in
2: And he's now gonna be fifty here in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yep. So ten years past what doctors told him. You know, and that's the thing is between his experience, I resolved all my medical conditions, got my thyroid back to normal, normal range, all of that. That's when we started to go, wow, there really is something to this psychedelic thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a lot to this psychedelic thing. And so, you know, this is this is what uh, you know, so Cole and I, so in these ceremonies that, that, uh, I went to the ceremony and then I was like, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to do it again. And because, you know, my old shit was coming back up around being, you know, on substances and having these things control my life. And like two weeks later, I was like, I think I want to do this again, Cole. <laughs> and so every month for a year, I was in a journey space. I was in a, in a, in a psychedelic expanded space every month OK, in a, in a facilitated situation. And I, my expansion, my growth within myself in that year was astronomical. And so at a point, you know, Cole and I would go to these groups and we, we wouldn't always participate, but we would be there. We would help. We would just sit and sit with people and hold space. And we started to help people move through their experiences. And so the, the facilitators started asking us to come back to, to their groups.
2: And more people and, were and, asking us in between to help them learn how to integrate these things. So it's more than the experience itself. It's in fact, let me break down the four ends of a p- integration or of a psychedelic experience. First, there's intention setting,
1: intake.
2: sorry, first is intake, then intention setting, then in the space and then integration. So a lot of people don't know that they're what it is to have an intake process to these kinds of experiences for some facilitators they're asking you only what medical conditions you may have or medications we ask people from birth their birth story what was it like in the home when their mother was pregnant because all of that what we've seen because we've have so much data on everyone we've worked with we can see how those things create how that body and that person develops from their childhood experiences not just from you know capital T trauma where it's something like a car accident or Uh, sexual assaults or abuse, but also from experiences we might not label as traumatic, but it's how the system reacted to what happened. So it could also be neglect. It could be parents that worked full time. It could have been falling off of a swing. And then that feeling of falling created a level of not feeling safe or like steady on the ground or
0: an illness, right? Like some sort of an illness right? Exactly. Chronic
2: illnesses create as much PTSD as anything else that the second you feel brain fog, you're panicking like, Oh no, it's happening again. And so all of these things, that's why for us, the intake, the first of the four ends is so important. And then after the intake, we have intention setting. What is someone looking to learn? We basically say to know, do be, or understand. And the reason why that's important is if you don't know where you're looking to go, How are you going to know if you get there? How are you going to know if anything improves? You may not know exactly what you're looking for, but even saying, well, I'm just going this first time to experience it because I don't know what to expect. That's an intention too, right? Yeah. And so after intention and in the space itself, the experience and then integration, which honestly is in most circumstances, the most important part, because Whatever you know, do, be, understand within that experience, what do you do with the information or the change or the perception shift? Um, How are you going to inform the people in your life? How is what you now know going to impact the people in your life, right? Say you've decided you need to quit your job. That's what's causing your chronic illness, but you've got a family to support. How do you sit down to have those kinds of discussions with people right? And so all of that is the integration that comes in the, what happens when, what happens next? Who do you need on your team? How can they support you? Whether it's a life coach, a business coach, a friend, a therapist, a massage therapist, whatever it is, the integration is the time to take what you know and how does it apply in your life and what's the plan moving forward. Um, so kind of like the biggest takeaway from the experience, how can you be supported? What do you need? And so, it's really important through the process to have those four aspects um, in consideration when you're going to explore this type of work.
0: Okay, because this isn't this isn't just about going and saying, "Hey, I'm going to do some shrooms and just go." Like this is actually a very um, there's a real process to this. It's not just about going and getting high. It's about really trying to do the work. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, I mean yes, it does make sense. And um, what is someone's definition definition of getting high? Right. Because you can get prescribed medication from the hospital and get high, and yep. still, and it can still have a benefit to it. So this, you know, this is we're about removing the stigma so that people can see that there isn't a process naturally we've created a process to kind of make things to give people a safe track to move into mm-hmm, the space yes. so that they can get the most out so they can have an optimized experience. And and so yeah, you gonna say something.
2: No, I'll go after you.
1: Yeah. So, so, so that they can have an optimized experience in, in in getting themselves to connect with what they're looking to connect with. And so some people use psychedelics for healing. Some people use psychedelics for optimization. Some people use psychedelics for recreation, which can also in the recreation space, be a therapeutic space as well. And so, mm-hmm. to discount to to discount somebody being in a high space uh, discounts the possibility of someone being in a joy space. There's a huge part in our society that that puts the poo-poo shame-whammy on yeah. on enjoyment, on 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 pleasure. Or you can only use can these only substances use these, if yes. you use them this way. True. And you can only serious and reverent, uh, and and get your healing. And I and I don't agree with that. That's 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 a space that I don't agree with. And when you have a process that like we've gone through hundreds of psychedelic experiences and and together, I mean, a lot of psychedelic experiences, not just with us, but as facilitators. And so we we, we've we've created a process for people to get from A to B or A to Z with with uh, with a greater efficiency
2: and effectiveness. Yeah. Think about it like with anything. Right. It depends on the person's intention. There is as much healing potential Sitting and doing mushrooms with friends and connecting, especially after so much isolation and alone time and feeling separate from, there's as much healing, it's different. There is a space to go internally within the self. There's a space for healing outside of the self and community. So for us to, it, it just becomes a judgment of what's the quote unquote right way and what what does reverent mean? Usually when we talk about reverence, we are assigning the same religious dogma that taught us that reverence is arms folded, bow your head in respect. But all of that comes from conditioning as well. When you go into other tribal cultures or down into the jungle, they're dancing and singing and You know, even if they're all singing the same song, that is connecting to the energy and the spirit of these master teacher plants and master mycelium or fungi or mushrooms. So for us to determine or for us to dictate what Healing should look like for anyone is more of the same of what's dysfunctional in our culture to mm-hmm. begin with. You know that it's like here you can you can only be prescribed these medications if you prove you're sick enough. Think about how our healthcare works to get into a good therapist or to get rushed in for quicker care. You have to be sick enough. Yes. but if you're if you're functional with your dysfunctional things, you don't have priority until you have a nervous breakdown health crash, and it is significant. And so for me, even if that means that um, people are having mushrooms and hanging out with friends, I don't have personally any problem with that. Where I think we're lacking culturally is education, responsibility, um, preparation, intentionality, sustainability with a lot of these power plants and and mycelium, uh, reciprocity, if we are taking things from cultures and we are not honoring or even bringing in any of the teachings or being in consideration of and inclusive of the people that have protected these teachings, that's where for me, it becomes a problem, mm-hmm. not in how people choose to partake. Because if someone who's been deeply depressed, highly anxious trauma for their whole life has one mushroom experience or one MDMA experience or ecstasy or meth for that matter, that opens their heart and gets them to finally remember what it is to be connected and breaks some of those shells and constructs of fear, they will treat people differently, right? They start to have a different responsibility with how they treat things around them. There's an amazing book by Dr. Carl Hart. If you want to challenge all of your conditioning around substances, um, Dr. Hart worked for NIDA, which is the was the National Institute for Drug Abuse or National, I think, Institute for Drug Abuse. They did all the studying, right? He worked there for, started 20 years ago on the war on drugs, on the other side of it, only to find that a lot of our conditioning is unwarranted, actually. And a lot of the things that we talk about of, overdosing and and substance abuse, most deaths were not because of overdose of a drug. It was contaminated drugs. So, you know, there's so much more to these conversations that haven't been had. Um, And we're really here to not only talk about the power plants, and we don't even say plant medicine because for us, we're not patients. We're here as students to learn about our body, the earth, the people we interact with, right? The the spirit of this planet the plants the animals so for us we say power plants Mm -hmm. right master teacher plants because if you show up to something as a patient you will be treated as a patient for us when you are shown the parts of you that are dysfunctional whether through diet boundaries past experiences when those become illuminated that starts to change how your body functions. That brings more ease to the organism. So then you can shift away from dis-ease and into ease, which then that's what we call vitality. And so for us, regardless of how someone gets there, me personally, no one should be denied any substance if they feel it could make their life better and it's not hurting anyone else. Now I do have my, you know, my own... Ideas around some of the animals that are being used in ritual, like Cambo and the 5-MeO Sonoran Desert Toad, which is DMT. These are things that are becoming more popular. Um, Those are depleting species because of the use, and we won't get necessarily into that today. Mm -hmm. But there are hundreds (laughs) of psychedelic mushrooms all over the world. If a continent has rain, they have mushrooms. And we've only identified a little over 200 that are psychoactive psychedelic mushrooms. Right. So the potential for people to be engaging with these uh, ancient technologies from the earth to have anyone dictate that someone cannot have access to something growing out of the earth is absurd, especially something that can often be grown in, an, in a home that can be cultivated uh, without big carbon footprints and without a lot of degradation to the earth. I say more power to the mycologists.
1: And I have never, as a nurse, seen anyone have an overdose on mushrooms. I've never seen anyone kill anybody with mushrooms. I've never seen anybody hurt anybody taking mushrooms or marijuana, for that for that matter, or anything in the, in that, that's in the, in the plant space. I have not. And I haven't seen anybody hurt anybody with MDMA or molly or ecstasy or hurt themselves. I, I just have not, I have not seen any of these things. So there's a lot around psychedelics and the stigma that is, is, is just not, it's not accurate. So I had to step back from what I was doing as a nurse and really look at what, what was going on. And I was part of that first journey, You know, swinging it back to, to what I was saying. Um, that first journey opened me up, that first psychedelic experience opened me up to see things in a way outside of how I had been programmed. And all of our habits are programs. And when you look at the programming that you have, it may not be working for you or it may have served you 20 years ago and you're still programmed in it now. This is one of the things that happens with us. We have people that are in marriages, people that are in businesses and all these structures that are old habit structures that served them when they got married or when they started the business and it doesn't serve them anymore. And so in a psychedelic space, you can see outside of the programming. And that's and, and that's one of the marvelous things about all of this. The, the stigmatization around psychedelics is is uh, is fortified by the the pharmacology, the, you know, big pharma and all of these companies, and and you know, the American Medical Association and everybody else who is controlling our healthcare paradigms, which is driven by politicians, and that's a whole other podcast episode for yeah. you if you want to if you want to dive into it. But these are the things that we're we're the, when legislation gets its hands on a person's ability to to lean into things, it can become problematic. So
0: the one thing that is different all the time is you hear about some people journeying once a month. I know Todd just mentioned that and you did that for 12 months. Then you uh-huh. hear, I think I heard Cole say once a quarter, like, is there a point where, cause you hear about people overdosing on ketamine, right? Like you hear about that. So is there a point where it's unsafe and it's dangerous and it can become addictive
2: I mean anything can. food, alcohol, things that are all legal if you're over a certain age, right? True. Cigarettes, um, sugar, uh, and there's lots of things that can, but a lot of what's missing, and mostly what's missing in these spaces of people are not educated and there's not tests to see if what they're using is actually a pure form of what it's meant to be, or if it is some chemical recreation that is been compromised because that's actually what's killing more people, not the substances themselves. It is a lack of education. And so the the same case would be with a car, right? If we put 14-year-olds behind a car with no driver's ed, what would the risk assessment be then? It would be very different, right? Mm -hmm. Because age, training, all of that stuff. So to answer your question, whether it's a month, a quarter, whatever is up to the individual. The key aspect is having someone you trust to be able to, maybe if they can't guide you in the experiences, they're there to help coach you through your integration. Because if someone's going through big changes in their life, they're looking for clarity. Um, They might only go once a quarter because they're already in so much chaos. Maybe they left their job or in a divorce. They're already in a psychedelic experience of some sort. Their life is already pretty chaotic. So they might want to go once a quarter to gain some more clarity and spend more time in the integration because there's so much going on. On the flip side, if someone is creating a program that they feel is for humanity and it's their purpose, they may be going monthly because that shift in perspective is helping them to align to what they believe is their mission. So to answer your question um, in more detail or to simplify it, it depends. And so having community and someone you trust And asking yourself the question, am I doing this to take a break from the life I'm in? Because you can easily use this as a more dissociative pattern of let me unplug from the life I don't want for the weekend and go enjoy this community that's being built in the psychedelic space or in these group retreats, only to go back to work on Monday to continue to participate in the same dysfunctional patterns and need to journey again in a month to be okay. Um, that's an individual game. And so that comes down to meeting with someone. This is why we started training integration coaches, because we see the need. We see how imperative it is to the process. Like we said, there's there's no wrong way to do it per se, um, but there are some ways that can create more pain or more suffering yes. and with a clear framework you can be reflecting on if this is functional for you because one person might say i want to do a microdosing protocol where i'm doing you know 0.01 of a gram every uh, every other day for 6 weeks for mm-hmm. 9 weeks for 12 mm-hmm. weeks and i want to track how this might improve my life right or someone might want to be doing once a month a two-gram mushroom experience. Now, all of this varies. The type or species of mushroom varies on as far as potency. Again, this is why we wanted to train coaches because it's something that it's all really hard to summarize. But if if you have someone helping you get clear in what you want and then supporting sovereignty so that you have check-ins and kind of like bumpers in a bowling alley, you're new to the game. Put up the bumper so you can practice going for the strikes and get a feel for the ball until you no longer need those same rails up, right? If you've had a history with substance abuse, if you've had a history of depression, having people or a life team is what we call it to ensure that you have protection. And I mean protection as far as in case you need something or in case you're not sure if you're doing it for the quote unquote right reasons, so that's why for us creating a framework, that's the difference, especially for people that maybe don't have the same amount of community they could talk to mm-hmm. or want to ensure that they're doing this in a way that is for their growth, not for, not as a coping mechanism.
0: Yeah. So, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, because I'm sure there's a lot of people who don't have the support, right? Like what you were saying, yeah. there's a lot of people who would look at you. If you said, okay, I want to do this, and I want to really get to the root of my issues, mm-hmm. right? And, and I, I think every one of us has some issues. I know I do. I have lots. I don't
2: have any Oh, come on. You're perfect. They're <laughs> <laughs> not perfect. an issue for me. They're I an issue know. for other people. Yeah, <laughs> but
0: you know what I'm saying? But then there might not be that support. And as facilitators, you provide that support, correct? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I interrupted yes. you talk. Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, we were jumping in at the same time. No interruption at all. Yeah. You know, from my vantage point, in order to talk about something being addictive, one has to look at what addiction is in and of itself. And there's a lot of really loose definitions of addiction being thrown about. And the, the definition uh, that I relate the most to is, is was revealed to me by Gabor Mate. And he, he has a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And he speaks about addiction being uh, a habit that has short-term benefits with long-term detrimental consequences. Mm. Okay. And so that's, that's the space that I move from when, when we talk about addiction. And usually from my vantage point, my experience, the people that we work with and my addictive tendencies is when i'm when i'm when i'm leaning into something that's addictive it's because i'm looking for a connection that i'm not finding and so i connect with a person i connect with an activity i connect with a substance i connect with tv or video games or sex whatever it is i'm connecting with that because i'm looking to connect with something and so it gives me a short-term fix that over a long period of time has a detrimental consequence to it mm. and when you look at any type of addiction it is a short term benefit with a long term detrimental consequence so, so the fears around addiction are usually are, are usually trumped up by by healthcare practitioners and people who mm-hmm. don't see this and it's, and it's attributed to the substance. It's not the substance, it's the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons why we have such a deep intake process with what we do is because if we have somebody that has an addictive tendency, an addictive quality, an addictive propensity in their lives, we will outsource them to someone else to actually help them navigate that habit before they come and work with us in a space. We're not here just trying to get people into a psychedelic space to blast them open. If a person we have, we have, we have what we call journey hoppers. And these are people who get addicted to the community because they're looking to connect. Mm -hmm. They get addicted to being away from their, their, their regular lives. Their spouse,
2: their kids. So they'll
1: go to, they'll go to a journey every week or twice a week. They're hopping from journey to journey Mm. because they're looking for connection. It's not the substances. And when you can get to the foundation of what's going on with a person, it's never the substance. It's never the activity. It's usually a person's looking to connect with something. It's usually a person is not safe, not connected, and not fulfilled in some aspect of their lives. And when those three things come online, when you're not safe, when you're not connected, when you're not fulfilled, all of your uncomfortable emotions will come online and push you into a space where you're looking for comfort. And the, and the, and the comfort fix is the, the the habit, the short-term benefit that over a period of time has a long-term detrimental consequence. So yeah.
2: Yeah, when you really dive into the research around substances, um, it gets grossly overreported, shocking for a lot of people. But if you know anything about supplements or anything else, mm-hmm. they take pieces of data to market, right? And so a lot of the war on drugs, which I was on the other side of, remember, like I was on that side on those stages speaking to kids and um, helping to support what is cur- the current cosmologies around substances. And if you really go past the opening um, breakdowns of what these reports say, you find that most of what we've been told is not accurate. They took pieces that were kind of true and inflated them. And so this is part of the reason that I've loved Dr. Carl Hart in his book, um, Drug Use for Grownups. Super triggering title. Really? I mean, you want to feel where your judgments are in this space? check out that book because it will trigger you. And he's a um, well-published scientist researcher of substances that's been his work for 20 whatever years. And so it ultimately, when you remove the chemical component and you look at what creates addiction, why do some people have to have ice cream at night or have to have a cookie before bed or have to play video games or have to watch the game right? All of these extreme behaviors or extreme habits come as a result of some childhood experience, <laughs> whatever it gives. Maybe they love to get together with the boys to watch football. Maybe they like to get, get together, you know, to play video games. There's a connection that's being formed there. And so regardless of what's creating it, If we can strip away the judgment parts and look at what need it's fulfilling, not only do you find deeper compassion for the individual, whether through substances, video games, you know, of someone who just came back from war that can't face reality. So they're finding other ways to not face it. Those all are individual based things and a lot less to do with some overarching blanket we call addiction. It's looking at what is the person fulfilling? What do, they, what do they get out of it? What's the payoff of this addiction? And if you look at most high performers and entrepreneurs, most of them are driven by trauma, right? They just used it in a way that's socially acceptable until their health crashes. Their body doesn't agree it's functional for them, but society is okay with it as long as you're contributing, as long as you're successful, as long as you're meeting the metrics of what we call good citizen for society. So those are the people that most often end up coming to us somewhere between 38 and 48. Typically when their health crashes, they end up integrating the wealth they accumulated back into their health (laughs) to try to get it back. Um, And they realize that how they've been living their life has been a compensation for some childhood experience, Mm -hmm. Um, whether it was health, whether it was abuse, whether it was a significant loss, um, whatever it is, you know, out of the over a thousand people that have done our intake form now, the two most common backgrounds of a a high performer is a father either gave significance and love for high achievement and didn't give acknowledgement if high achievement wasn't achieved, or the father was emotionally absent they could be physically as well or through um, alcoholism or something like that, but they are emotionally unavailable. And so eight out of 10 out of those over 1,000, 1,100 or so now. And so that speaks significantly. And usually when there's a successful business owner like that, they usually have a sibling that's an addict. So it's two responses to a similar event.
1: Oh, you know, when you, when you look at automobile accidents, right? When you drive, when you go out into a busy city, And you look at how many cars are driving. There's a lot of cars driving. And when a car accident happens, it's really, really horrible. It's not the most common thing in the world. Auto accidents are common, but in contrast to the amount of people driving... They are actually not in that common. how many hours common. in a car? They're not that common. And so when you look at substances, when you look at the people, the amount of people that are taking substances like cocaine, that are taking substances Adderall? like Adderall, which is speed, right? Which is methamphetamine, it's meth. uh-huh. right? When you look at these things, the amount of people that are taking these things that are not addicted is extremely high, extremely high. The thing is The sensationalization of people being a crackhead or being a meth head, and it's being blown up into this space where if you do this, you're going to end up like this, and we strike fear into people and we control them. Again, I, I, you know, as a child, right, as a 16-year-old, I used to, I was... I was so mischievous and wanted to have attention. I did anything I could to get in trouble. And I would go out and I would hang out at crack houses, right? And I would sit there and look at them and listen to them and watch them as they, as they took their crack. And they would tell me all these stories of these horror stories of the things that have happened in their lives. And then they would get high and they would fall asleep. And then they would be like, look, I have to go and figure something out so I can get more money to get this because I want to escape from where I am. This was a part of my childhood, okay? Exploring this and, and and seeing what this was about, I didn't know what what to make of it at that time. But as I got into my thirties and forties, I was like, "Holy cow! This is, all makes sense now." And so, when when I when I look at the amount of people that were coming in the hospitals that I worked in that were drunk, it was the same people every night. Mm-hmm. The same people that were high. It was the same people every night. It wasn't new people. There wasn't a whole slew mm-hmm. of people. There was a few select mm-hmm. people that got. Put into this space with substances that that they, they became chemically dependent upon it. <laughs> it was the regulars, would, and and so and, and so these would these would be the regulars. We would yeah. call them the regulars. This is their space. And so when you look at substances and the stigma that has been placed on them, it's the same thing with food. There are there are obese people in 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 the world, and it's not the it's not the majority of people. It's not. And so the and, and the addiction to food is because food is readily available. Processed food, food that people can get hooked on is readily available. And so the more people have access to it, the more they can use that short-term benefit of feeling satiated, feeling distracted, feeling feeling, good, feeling connected, feeling pleasure. Again, it goes back to the hedonism, right? And we have been taught that pleasure is a bad thing, that something's wrong with it. So if anything makes a person feel good and distracts them from being a a member of society that would be working and, and providing the machine what it needs it's bad, it's wrong. And so these are stigmas that have been placed around psychedelics. And I'm here to tell you and, and your audience and everybody who's listening, if you wanna nurse with with 29 years of nursing experience to talk about psychedelics and the shit shroud that has been placed over it, come let's sit down and have a meal together and I can talk to you about all of my experiences, the experiences of the people around me and the, pe- the people that Cole and I have helped, the people that Cole and I have guided through experiences, whose businesses are helping people on grand scales and they're not addicted. There's not dysfunctional. It's actually opened them up into different spaces, higher levels of contribution contribution Mm -hmm. than, than they've ever thought possible. And I know it's done that for me. And I know it's done it for Cole as well.
2: And when you really, we'll take a deep breath after that one. (laughs) I could imagine anyone listening right now, we've introduced a lot of concepts that if you're feeling like slight agitation, in your body and not saying you, Sandy, but anyone listening, just observe that when, when there's any challenge to beliefs, it can make us actually a little uncomfortable. Just know that nothing we're saying is law or rule, or these are our perspectives, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In what we do. And if you're, if you're really sitting and talking with friends and you really asked how many people have experienced mushrooms or ecstasy, or when they were, Having to do rounds in medical school or when they were in residency or lawyers, how many were either snorting Adderall because they needed to get the hit or doing cocaine or taking other substances to get through school? How many of those people became addicts? Not many. They were utilizing them to survive for a period of time. Is that necessarily the most functional behavior? Maybe at the time it was, right? But if you can contrast that with, say, alcohol or some other things that have more outward destructive things as far as societally, if you really were able to ask each friend if they felt safe enough to tell you the truth, how many friends have experimented with substances and, quote unquote, are fine? They didn't become addicts because they tried something, said this isn't for me, or they did it for a period of time, and they grew up. It wasn't something they wanted to participate in. And so the truth is most people, when we do an intake process, tried mushrooms, you know, in high school or college, experimented with marijuana, maybe even cocaine. But when we started to ask around about over-the-counter prescriptions, almost all. And so there's, you know, there's some part that believes that even if it wasn't prescribed to them, if it was over the counter or if it was a prescribed medication that it was still better when chemically literally with Adderall is a methamphetamine and so it is not <laughs> different than the meth heads you're showed on the news that have missing teeth and whatever right. i assure you it's not the substance alone creating the problem it's trauma it's economic standing it's childhood experiences, it's the other lifestyle components, lack of access to a dentist and medical care and all, it takes more than just the substance to create such extreme conditions. And so when you really start to find the openness with friends, you most would find they have a lot more access to community than they realize. Just most people, especially now, don't feel safe to share they might be exploring the research behind this they might have heard that johns hopkins put 17 million or whatever into a research center or that it's been used for end of life care for cancer patients yeah or that they're seeing incredible results from one psilocybin which comes from mushrooms um, or can come from mushrooms one use of psilocybin for many when they checked in with them six months down the line most of them were still seeing results from that one treatment. We don't have anything else that gets results like that. And that makes significant change in the person and how they look at life, like their entire belief around what's possible, giving them or turning up that little flicker flame of hope that almost burnt out that finally now they see that they might have a chance in turning things around Mm. There's no other treatment that does that. Not even close. Nope. So, okay. That's it's that's a lot to take
0: in. It's a it lot. But you know what? I, I probably don't know a single person who I knew in university who didn't try mushrooms, who didn't try weed. Um, and you're right. They're not addicts now. And I'm 51. And so, you know... I can I can attest to that. Now, the one thing I will say is you've got these celebrities now, and it's almost like this is becoming, I don't want to say a fad, but you're hearing about it much more. You know, what was it not long ago? Megan Fox came out and said she did ayahuasca, and it was terrifying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all people hear about is how horrifying and scary the experience is. Right? And I think she did go deeper and said, Later on, it was better for her. But at the beginning, it was horrifying. So maybe speak to that because she did the three-day ayahuasca um, in, I think she was in Peru with her boyfriend, whatever his name is. I can't remember. But, you know, speak to that because I know ayahuasca is a very powerful power plant.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But, you know, is it, can you take this? and come back and be forever altered in such a way that your traumas are now front and center of your mind all the time. Can that happen?
1: Yes, and um, the thing is, most people's traumas are there, period. And they've learned to block them away. And this is one of the things that substances, activities, work addiction, all of these things get in the way so that you can't process them and what ayahuasca does is it brings it to the forefront so you can address it and i've never met anybody all right including myself and i and i'm I'm sure cole can attest to this too i've never met anybody that has had something outside of themselves come in from ayahuasca that didn't have anything to do with them okay when people and this is another thing that has been that has been placed into vogue, is the horrible ayahuasca experience most people that i know Go and have awesome ayahuasca experiences. It's the one or two people that have the the, the frightening terrifying. experience that that gets blown out of proportion. It's the same thing with yeah. it's the same thing with substances. These things get blown out of proportion. And if somebody has some really deep-set stuff that they're not addressing, and ayahuasca puts it in front of you to address, that's, that's gonna terrifying. be <laughs> terrifying. That's terrifying. If you have to address yourself, if you have to address that you're living in a house with a spouse that you can't stand and you have children, that's terrifying or losing control, losing control of your life. That's terrifying. You know, wanting to tell your parent off that did something to you as a child. That's terrifying. And so these things will come to the surface. And so if you don't address them, I, what, what happens is ayahuasca goes into the unconscious, the subconscious parts of you and brings things up for you to address as you can address them. And then as you move that out the way, it allows the next step to come up and you address it and you move it out of the way. If you don't address it, if you don't address it, it can stay in your conscious mind. And so this is one of the things that happens and why it's really important for people who are going for ayahuasca experiences to work with somebody who knows how to integrate the experience. Because if you just go and do three nights of ayah and then you go back into your life and you don't know how to integrate this stuff these things that have, have, that have come up from your childhood or from your past relationships will be floating in front of you like you were talking about. And these are things for you to address. And one of the things that we found with most of the clients that we work with is that there are tons of things that are traumatic that the, the trauma cycle hasn't been closed. And so they just bury it. And you keep pushing down and stacking more stuff on top of it and keep stacking stuff on top of it. And so as these things come up to the surface to be addressed, you've got to address it. So you can close the trauma loop and move it to the side so that you can move on with your life.
2: Because here's the thing. Look at the media in general. If the general public believes substances are bad, then they're going to get the stories that are going to get the most hits, right? That get the most clicks. That's how it works. If you want to hear a representation that makes more sense to you as an individual... I know I wouldn't be getting advice from Megan Fox and it's not to put her down, but we don't have things in common where I'd be like, Megan Fox will know what to do. Let me go to her Instagram. For sure. However, if you go to like Red Table Talk, Jada Pinkett Smith just did an incredible video on psychedelics with her children, with her oldest, about microdosing, talking to her mother about their experiences You're getting a more mature dialogue and one that went with intention and clarity, know how to create safety for themselves. If you don't know what safety even is, there is no chance I'd be going to an ayahuasca circle to start. And ayahuasca as a beautiful power plant is not the grand mall best that there is. It's big. It's a big experience and it could be bigger than you've prepared for. Most people don't go run a marathon on Monday when they haven't trained. Psychedelics, when you bring the intentionality to preparing yourself for this type of experience, garners the results of that. So if someone has no experience, but they've seen the documentaries on ayahuasca or ibogaine or 5-MeO-DMT or some of these other um, high-profile, we'll say, substances, Um, they're being sold an idea again, marketing, uh, doesn't mean every substance or any substance for that matter is good for every person all of the time. Mm -hmm. If someone has adrenal issues, if they have had thyroid issues, if they've had a lot of body fatigue, brain fog, I personally wouldn't be starting with an experience like ayahuasca where there's a lot of purging. If the body is already tired, I don't want to tax the body any further from a physiological standpoint. So starting with something like microdosing mushrooms or, and I'm not condoning the illegal or illicit use of any substances in any place that it's not legal. There, I said it. Yep. (laughs) If a person was choosing to make decisions, really doing research and looking to people that you can relate to that have had experiences similar is going to get you more of the information that you're looking for and anyone that thinks mushrooms can't be as powerful or more than ayahuasca hasn't done enough mushrooms because i assure you (laughs) once you surpass a certain amount it is as powerful an experience in getting you out of your own way um and again not going to go into that today Be mindful of any glorification of any experience. Many people believe that ayahuasca needs to be frightening and dungeons and demons and darkness so that you can face it, so that you can break through. That is all Western mindset attached to this power plant. That if I heal hard enough, I will earn the right to be happy and healthy. Mm. It doesn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. That is another conditioning that is happening in Western society that gets supported by some Southern cultures because that's South American culture, because that's what Americans want, the money and people flying down there becomes the dictator of the experience. And if a Westerner doesn't have a big enough experience, they'll leave a bad trip advisor report or bad testimonial, and it will ruin the centers getting more people. If you look at tribes, um, like tribe leader, woman leader, Marley Tume of the Huni Kuin, she doesn't ascribe to any of that. There has never been a death in her ceremonies. So a lot of the things that you're hearing, again, are brews that have been changed that Westerners aren't ready for. That people have been medicated with medications they're not supposed to take with these substances. And haven't been honest about it. And haven't been honest. And they want to break through so badly, they'll do it at any cost. With Marley Tume, we were just in Peru about a month ago. I guess longer now. um, Well, about a month ago. And in sitting with them for her, it must be filled with love to elevate where you are out of the darkness and the shadow. You might face some things that are challenging, but the entire time you feel so surrounded and held by this mother energy that is Marley Tume and she does the ceremonies with her children, her 21-year-old, her 19 or 17-year-old, and her 15-year-old right? They're doing the ceremony together. It's not wailing and screaming in darkness. Mm -hmm. If that's the experience you want, you will find it just like anything else on this Mm -hmm. planet. If you don't want to heal that way, there are options Mm -hmm. because there is nothing enlightened about suffering. Okay. You mentioned
0: um, people who are not honest with medications they might be taking. So what are contraindications to trying these power plants? Like, Can somebody who's on an SSRI do this? Because, you know, SSRIs have different functions in terms of managing anxiety, managing depression. So can they do this or like what's your experience in this?
1: Yes. And, Um, you know, it all depends on the person, the circumstances, situation. Situation: how much of a dose people are taking and are they willing to wean down off... And which substance. And and which substance they're using and are they willing to wean down off of things. You know, when people on MOAI inhibitors, I would say that's a a hard no with with, uh, things like ayahuasca, with things like mushrooms. There's there's no way I'm I'm putting anybody and I'm going to encourage anybody into a space like that on those medications. SSRIs and SNRIs... uh, there, there's there's a difference uh, with that, and, and it's because of how things affect the serotonin system. Yeah. You don't want to get somebody dumping serotonin into their body and then they have what we would call serotonin syndrome. That can be dangerous. I haven't experienced anybody in that space, um, and it, I, I, I have heard stories and tales very far and few in between. That's is, what
2: the experts say, but we
1: have never witnessed okay, it ourselves. Okay. So the thing is, with SSRIs and SNRIs, um, the, 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 the psychedelic experience may be minimized because of the amount of circulating uh, serotonin situations that are going on in the person's body. And so they may start up, upping the dose or taking more so that they can get somewhere. And that that can become an issue in and of itself. Other than that, I haven't had any 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 experiences or or spoken to anybody or any facilitators that have had severe issues with that. Ayahuasca is the one thing that people have had had issues with with, with taking anti uh, antidepressants and antipsychotic medications. That I would I would say is a stay away from situation. With any of these things, I encourage people to speak with their 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 healthcare practitioner. Okay, many people are afraid to speak to their, their psychiatrist because it's illegal. Yet, psychiatrists are prescribing medications for people who are on crack, cocaine, heroin, mm-hmm. and all this of uh, these other illicit things that people are taking, and they're still doing it, and they're telling their therapist, yeah, I'm still taking these drugs, and I still need that prescription. So the idea around uh, not speaking to your health practitioner, your, your psychologist or psychiatrist, about using, psych, uh, using psychoactive substances that are Fairly safe, like mushrooms and LSD. More um, San Pedro. It, it, these are things that, if your practitioner is is uh, not amped is not amped and up enough to go and investigate these things, it's an issue. So the, all of these things can be explored. Um, I would start if anybody is is on a, any kind of antidepressant. I would wean off if you can wean off completely and be off between two to four weeks before the ceremony or the journey or the trip or whatever you're going on, that is where I would go. Um, if, if you can't, I would start with microdosing something really, really small to see what the interaction is like. Uh, microdosing LSD or, or, or mushrooms psilocybin, or psilocybin yeah. mushrooms. That's the only two places I would go with that. I would not mix MDMA with SSRIs or MDA with SSRIs or SNRIs or MAOI inhibited. I would, I would not. So that's, that's, I mean, those are the contraindications that I'll share with you right now. I mean, we could have a whole discussion on this. that, that could Yeah, go on totally. For days.
2: There's, there's tons of research out there now, and there's actually a lot of information around things like that. At the end of the day, you know, I mean, this is partially why we started offering the training that we do, is because we had some people that had friends and family members working with psychedelics that they're like, I just want to understand this more. Um, Or maybe someone's a therapist that wanted more training, not because they'd ever hand out the substance. It's about how do you help someone that is going to do what they're going to do regardless in a way that is safe, in a way that's supportive, in a way that actually improves their trajectory growth of where they want to go, right? It gets them where they want to be. And so because there's so much information, that's why we recognized with how much is out there, there's not a lot of framework to help people to place and understand and learn their you know be able to if someone's gonna microdose uh, regardless of whether they have support they're gonna, do it. they're gonna do it we would rather them have a framework to yeah. see if it's working for them or not by doing body tracking and what we call body mapping because your body stores energy in certain places that tends to be from childhood experiences If someone's having a lot of thyroid uh, they get sick a lot in their throat things like that in their teeth, where our questions start to inform, where are you not feeling heard? Where how is your expression of truth? How's your communication? I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> I have no thyroid, so I'm kind of uh, experienced in that area. <laughs> well, and so if someone wants to know if these things are benefiting them, we are like, you can't just track if your mental health is better What's your body saying? Yeah. You know, every body has a unique language that it's speaking that regardless of whether we, we remove the thing that we perceive as dysfunctional, it does not change where we're holding the energy. It just moves to something else until we get the message. Right. Yeah. Because all of our bodies are speaking to us. Um, what the body's saying takes some discernment and some listening and some learning and some boundary creation, communication, honesty, And that is what most people really aren't prepared for in stepping into this work. They'll be shown what they would need to do in order to be well. And they're just not in a place to do it yet, which is okay, too. It's just knowing that once you know what you know, it is impossible to unknow it. And it can make life very challenging once you know and... If you don't have the community and the support or a therapist or something, it can leave people feeling more lost. So for us, um, that's why the intake process is important. Just because we can get to the root of something doesn't mean that we should. And I don't use should lightly or often, but if someone is in a very destructive um, place in a home that's not supportive, in a relationship, a job, and there's so much, it can be like, crumbling a house of cards if they don't have a place for support right and so that can inform what kind of substance at what time so though people would argue whether they're you know what's the best way or worst way to do this the more intention and education you bring people are making informed choices for themselves
0: that's very very wise actually what you just said because I know I listened to you speak, both of you, once before and how a substance, any kind of substance, whatever it is, but a power plant can really change your life and it can change relationships, just like what you said. So I love the work that you guys are doing and you guys are educating people because it's so much better than just, Me getting on a plane and going to Peru and saying, I'm going to go and do this, having no idea what I could possibly be opening up.
2: It can be beneficial in those ways, too. But for those that are like, I'm not going to be on the person jumping on a plane to go to the jungle. If you don't like being outside, if you're afraid of spiders or snakes or bugs, that's a reason to not go to the jungle. Um, And going to the jungle is not sustainable for the jungle. If we continue at the rate of cities being built in the jungle of these retreat centers, we're not looking at sustainability either. So, you know, there's so many big questions. There's not one way to do it. It's knowing that you can find the way that works for you. And in a space that works for you, some people will want to do it clinically with a therapist. Mm -hmm. It's in third trials with maps right now for depression and PTSD. But that's not functional for everyone either. I don't feel safe in doctor's offices because of a lot of my chronic illness and pains in the past. So for me, just like some people will go for fast food and frozen food and fast, convenient, harder, faster, more now. um, Others will be seeking for the more organic, earth-connected, slow-down, feel-the-self-to-get-present to fully embody the knowledge, to connect to the ancestors or to God or to your family or to your animals, whatever that means for you, that path can be laid out for you. It's asking no matter who you put um, to be a guide for you, whether a doctor, a therapist, a practitioner of any kind to ask questions, to not give your power away and only allow yourself to be guided. If you trust the person to guide you, not to give you the answers, not to fix what's wrong with you, but to allow you to have that process yourself. So just like with doctors, the same discernment here, right? Get a second, third opinion. Someone Mm -hmm. might say you should do ayahuasca in the jungle, get a second, third opinion. Um, And that's that's what I hope, if nothing, for people to take away from this, is that if, if it's piqued your interest at all, uh, you're welcome to reach out to us on Instagram at TalkHole or our individual Instagrams. Uh, we love to educate. Please don't send us messages. How can I get mushrooms? I won't tell you. Um, that is not legal. Yeah. So know that there's incredible organizations like MAPS. Uh, there's incredible organizations like the Ancestor Project, like Veterans Walk and Talk.
1: Decriminalized Nature.
2: Decriminalized Nature. There's psychedelic meetups in pretty much every city. So if you're looking to get more education and more information, it's all around you. You it just is, didn't know. Yeah. Or people weren't openly sharing because yep. they can't.
1: There's, there's, uh, there's uh, Psychonaut Wiki. Uh, and that's, that's a really amazing resource. Uh, there's also Erowid.org, E-R-O-W-I-D.org. There's sapiensoup.com. These are incredible resources for people to learn about psychedelics from beginner to advanced, to scientist, to a person who is,
2: mystic. A,
1: who is a mystic, to a person who's a, who has nothing more than a fifth grade education. These are sites that are here to empower people with knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so the more knowledge that we have, the more we can get different perspectives, the more we can understand these things from our own vantage point, instead of having somebody tell us, we've had a lot of people telling us what's right and wrong for us, what's good and bad for us, what is the right way for this organ. And I've had people tell me that just met me what's right for this organism. And it wasn't even a conversation. It was this is what's right for you and that's it. So these are, these are places that we can go to learn and become informed. And that's what we are educating people in. It's not just in psychedelics. We're in educating people to be informed and sovereign in their space and to bring an informed and sovereign person to their relationships, to their families, to their businesses, to everything that they're creating, every interaction that they have, every government, every computer program that they write. This type of sovereignty and, and, and aware interaction is extremely important for us. And this is what we're looking to educate people in psychedelics is a tool that we utilize to help people be informed and intimate within themselves.
2: There's two books. Since we just did a bunch of links, at least now most of your links will be in one chunk. (laughs) For anyone that wants to hear more um, and just more on this topic from a, we'll say, education standpoint, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. As Tom mentioned, uh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by Gabor Mate talks a lot about addiction. Um, As far as a podcast, plant medicine podcast, a lot of doctors, experts, researchers, lawyers. And then when it comes to more of the mysticism side, um, side of things, there's an episode of You Can't Say That. I don't remember who the host is, but the guest is Baba Kalindi, K I L I N D I E E I Y I, that talks more about mushrooms and and what that can actually do. And it's another side that many people aren't educated on. You know, they've heard a lot of the Terrence McKennas and people from the 60s, 70s. Not many are familiar with Baba Kalindi, who, as a martial artist, as a uh, master teacher himself before he died last year there are there is an avenue for each person if you want to stay in your in your christian cosmology there's people for that like david avadon who helps people to really reconcile their religion their religious beliefs that may maybe was wounded by the people of their religion mm-hmm. right and so there is a path for each person and our goal is to be the intersection for to help guide each person home Whether that's to a certain community, a certain religion, a certain belief, a certain background, a certain gender, a certain non-gender, we're not here to decide what is true for anyone. We've recognized that in supporting people back to their own truth, they are more compassionate, more considerate. They're able to hold space for others and their ability to tolerate increases. And that's where we see social change. So that's our sole purpose. And if anyone's feeling the call to get more educated, we're available. Uh, You can always join the Condor approach. You don't have to be a licensed therapist or psychologist. There is a massive need for integration coaches, and it's something that we can teach. Even if you don't have a lot of experience, it doesn't require experience. It requires knowing how to hold space for people as they discover their truth. People
0: can find you where? And they can find you for guidance. They can also find you if they want to become facilitators. Tell me exactly where they can go.
2: It's one website for all of it. Okay. So it's T a h k o l e T-A-H-K-O-L-E.com. You can find us on all the social channels, Clubhouse, all of that. If you search Tahkole, you'll find us.
0: Perfect. And I'm going to close with one last question for each of you, if this is okay. How has this journey that you've been on changed you as a person? I'm going to start with Ta.
1: I'm going <laughs> you deep might, here. I know, I going for another hour. <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, the self-loathing aspect, uh, the self hate, the the belittlement of myself, the keeping myself small, um, the not the the, the the antithesis of acknowledgement, all of that, I have been able to move beyond the 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 depth of self love, the recognition of the word love as being synonymous with the word am as a m. And when I look at myself in the mirror and I say I love you, it is I am you. When I look at another person and I see them, I see them as I am you. When I look at my dogs or my house and I say I love my house, I am my house. And so it's important for me to nurture all things and all people because I see the oneness. I see this synchronicity. I see this foundation of togetherness, of wholeness. I've moved away from this idea of separation. I understand that I am an individual part as a human organism. I have been able to see the depth of love in the word am. I am all things. And this has put me in a position to love myself and love everything around me with a fervor and a passion that words will not describe. And so that has been the biggest, most monumental change for me and shift for me was outside of the I'm disconnected from this. I don't I feel a part of all this. I feel like so lonely. I feel like a stranger. I feel like I'm from outer space. Yes, and I feel like I'm from outer space, and I feel like I'm from here because I am outer space, and I am here. I am all these things. So that has been the biggest, most monumental thing for me was to move beyond the fear of being separated, the fear of, of being whole, the fear of, of, of being one with everything, and that everything, the way it is, is inside the will of source, the source of all things you can call that God, the universe, energy, consciousness, or whatever. All of these things that are happening, whether we deem them as horrible or pleasurable and fantastic, they are all the same source. And so, I am able to love all of these things and lean into them and become intimate with them because I am all of them.
0: Beautiful, beautiful talk. What about you, Cole?
2: Yeah. Yeah, for me, when it comes to like the, the outcome, like Ta said, it's impossible to really summarize. But the first thing that came to my mind was like I mentioned earlier, diet, nutrition, exercise, supplements, biohacking got me 60% out of my, I say, suck less. So once I hit 60, suxty, (laughs) kind of, once I hit 60% of health, to be, to feel healthy, right? Heal thy, as I reached 60% of heal thy, I saw there, if there was 35 or 40%, that was the first time I believed that pain-free was possible and that vitality and to actually want to stay on this planet longer was possible. And so psychedelics and these master mycelium and incredible teachers gave me the opportunity to see and obtain and create that last 40% As long as I was in pain, I was blocking my passion and my purpose, you know, and when I first entered into changing my life and my diet, I was just trying to get from a seven out of 10 every morning. I was like, man, if I could start my day at a six every day, I could get out of bed. Mm -hmm. You know, I was looking for the suck less. And so once I saw once that that, you know, measurement got to where it might be possible to enjoy my body in my life I became super committed to explore anything. And as most people do, they come to this work out of inspiration or desperation. And I was desperate enough to explore. And so what these power plants and Master Mycelium gave me was my mission and my purpose, my commitment, my knowing I was always placed here for something, but it had felt like so long, I'd never be able to achieve it because of my body. And it was like, I have all the passion and desire burning in my heart as possible, but it's like my body couldn't keep up. And that was so frustrating and maddening and made me hate my body on so many levels. What they gave me was a deep love and appreciation for my body to mend that relationship and many other relationships that needed to be mended that I could not have found any other way. I could not have reached the deep levels of self-compassion, the deep levels of forgiveness for myself, for things I perceived I'd ever done wrong, that I was trying to, on some levels, make up for and overcompensate for. I got to clear the air to get the energy charged up in my body to be really unstoppable with what I'm here to do. And there's no other way I could have gotten there.
0: Wow. Very powerful. So you even brought tears to my eyes. Uh, I barely
2: held it together. The um, only reason I did is because I just did my makeup and we have a dinner (laughs) to go to. (laughs) Normally I just let the tears fully go.
0: (laughs) Well, no, but you know, I do believe that, you know, you have to get yourself to a point where you can do the things like you can, you're feeling okay enough to cook for yourself tonight. I can cook a meal and I can eat whole real foods because I can cook. I'm feeling well enough. So everything that you're saying, it makes a lot of sense. And so you were to hear, but you got yourself up to hear, And Mm -hmm. that's huge because you guys are on a mission that is beautiful. And everything that you speak of is beautiful because I've listened to you guys for months now. And I want to thank you so, so much for coming today. I really appreciate meeting you and having you here.
2: That's mutual.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for this podcast. Thank you for the work that you do. Just thank you for being here. Thank you.
2: you.
0: Join me next week where I cover off more exciting topics. I hope to continue to engage you and excite you and show you that living in your 40s, 50s and beyond can be exciting, balanced and healthful. Bye for now.